Welcome to Legends from the Hill, the Franciscan University Alumni Podcast, where I talk to alumni about their candid experiences as students and what they're doing in life now. Here in Season 3, we look forward to hearing from alumni across the globe about how Franciscan University has impacted their life and the lives of people around them. I'm your host, Christy Fleming, Class of 2010 and Director of Alumni Relations at Franciscan. Thanks for joining Legends from the Hill podcast. Today, we're excited to have Frank Monaco with us. Frank is a 1972 College of Steubenville graduate who studied English as his major. Frank went on to become a very successful police chief in Pennsylvania and was also in the Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity. We are excited to have Frank join us today. So welcome, Frank. Thank you. It is, nice to be here. Yeah, it's so good. I'm excited to hear more about your story and some of your stories. Uh, so we'd love to go back to the very beginning of where are you from and how did you choose to study at the College of Steubenville? Well, I'm, I'm from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And um, when I went to school, that was during the Vietnam War, and colleges were filled up for the people who were trying to get the college deferment. So uh, I applied to several places. Uh, my mother said um, she would um, only pay for me to go to college if I would go to a Catholic school. Uh, she was a very devout Catholic. So um, I narrowed it down to St. Vincent's and, and, and College of Steubenville. And um, Back then, uh, you could drink at 18 in, in Ohio legally. Um, so <laughs> I went with Steubenville. Uh, and I'm glad I had no I had no regrets. I mean, that was a – I missed uh, – initially, when you're going with people have um, – maybe uh, talk about going to college football games, like people at Penn State are all there and stuff like that. I missed that opportunity, but uh, I was very, very – I was very shy in high school. So um, it was good for me to be a smaller place. It was better for me. Because um, that had been lost in the in the crowd at, at a big school, so worked out for me. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to hear more about what the small school of College of Steubenville was like uh, when you were on campus. So, did you know exactly what you were going to study when you got here, or how did that go down? No, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to college. It was my parents' idea. I wanted to join the Navy, um, see the world, but they insisted back. That was the thing to do um, uh, back then. So that's where I ended up going, and um, I um, it was it, it, there's all the stuff that's there now. It astounded me. I was just there, back there for the first time in a number of years, and I almost didn't recognize the place. Uh, when I was there, there were uh, two, um, there were four dorms, two female and two male, uh, one cafeteria, and then uh, going up the hill, there was the um, classrooms. I mean, the, the the academic building, and that was it. They started. They completed the chapel um, on the. It's going up on the left side. Of, they did another one, but that one, they finished that just when I was getting ready to graduate, and they started on the uh, student center, uh, where they were supposed to have them both done, but there was a labor strike, so we never. I never got any. We paid for the uh, uh, JC. Uh, what was JC? JC Williams the, Center. J. Williams, yeah, center. We paid for that, but I never, we never got to use it. Wow. I would have loved to have that, but we didn't have it. So there was that, the campus was very, very small. Yeah, we were, not yeah, very, very many buildings. So did you stay on campus to hang out, yeah. or did you guys go well, off they, campus? They didn't let you, um, you weren't allowed to live off the campus. Now, when I got to be a second semester senior, I did move off. What were they going to do with me at that point? 
back then you had to stay on campus unless you you were a local resident. So you had to live there in the dorms. And um, but you had to be in a fraternity because there was no social life otherwise. Now, at the bottom of the hill, uh, as you're heading down right before you barrel off to, um, as Route 7 goes up and down along the river there, mm-hmm. there was a uh, place, there was a boulevard motel. And attached to that was they had a bar called the the um, library, and it was a college bar. I said you could drink at eighteen there, so we all hung out there the freshman year, and then it closed. <laughs> that was too bad because you could walk down there from uh, from the campus and walk home, and then uh, that closed. And then um, there's another place we went called Stoney's, but that was you know the library. Of my fresh, freshman year was really the most fun to go because everybody you'd see everybody in there. The library—that's like, an you know, ironic name. It's an ironic Sorry. name to have the library. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that was a play on words. Totally studying. I always spent all my time in the library, you know. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, there was a place called Stoney's that we would go later on, but it wasn't quite the same. That was further up. And then, um, so our fraternity, um, when I president fraternity, we had we bought a building, the old American Heating Building, in downtown Steubenville, and uh, we rented that out. And then we'd have a party there every weekend, you know. Um, they say it was an affair for Undolaire. You paid one or two dollars for the keg of beer, and then we'd all go down there and play music. And it was the other people were envious because we had that place to go. It was something to do because there wasn't, wasn't a lot of things to do over there. Uh, with all due respect, you know, it just wasn't back then for right. the college kids. So what what there's now it just astounds me how things have developed since I left. Um, but it was it was much different. Yeah, that is that's really different. How were there a lot of fraternities or just a few of you guys? There were four fraternities. <laughs> And if you didn't have the grades to get in, then um, you couldn't pledge. And um, if you couldn't pledge, and you were really out, you were really out on a, a limb because there really wasn't a whole lot of things to do after the library closed. You're pretty much on your own. I had people tell us how lucky we were. He had that that building that we had. Um, so it was not, nothing special. But we put a new floor in, put a tile floor in. We had one of the brothers' dads was in the flooring business, and he put a, a tile floor in with our logo. And um, it was fun. You know, we used to rent places, a place called Pottery Edition Fire Hall, which was up uh, Route 7, um, a short distance. We would rent that out for parties, uh, sometimes bigger ones. Uh, that was earlier, but so once we got our house, we pretty much did it there all the time. We always went to that one place. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's super interesting. Was there an actual library on campus at that time? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I believe, yeah, there was a library up in the main bu- academic building. Oh, okay. The fact I'm thinking about it tells you I didn't spend a lot of time there. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. seems to me there was a library there. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I wish it was a mistake for me to go to college at that age because I wasn't mature enough. I, I started, I was the youngest person in my, in my uh, high school class because I had a cousin that went to public school from Catholic school, and they wanted us to go together. And so I was really, probably should have waited a year for me to go. Hmm. Uh, I'd have much more mature. But uh, yeah, I'd have been I'd have got much better grades had I gone later instead of earlier. But you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So how did you how did you decide to study English? That's that's a, a pretty interesting degree. Yeah, there was a um, we had Doctor Lee was Doctor English, and I had him for um, uh, basic English or whatever freshman English was, and he did a he did a story. It was the um, trying to think. It was a Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He, uh, he had us read, and then we discussed it. And he did it so brilliantly that if I ever sat in on a class, I had to be a substitute teacher. I would have done what he did. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to think. It wasn't It wasn't Scarlet Letter or something along those lines about a a, a ribbon that uh, some woman wore, 
and um, he made it so interesting. I said, everybody should have a, I want an instructor that may get me engaged. Cause I had, I had ADD before it was uh, popular. You know, I get smacked in the head cause I wasn't paying attention. And you had somebody that was that engaging to listen to them speak. That was, you know, that's what I wanted. To, that's what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed it. Now, I mean, obviously business would have been better, better thing for me, which a lot of my friends were in, but English was just something else. I, uh, something I thought interested me would pass the time. There weren't a lot of options there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a the- I took, the- I did some theater classes and I did some, uh, I actually went to, they had radio and TV major when I applied and they shut it down when I got there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's what I really wanted to do. And then I was, I was between, uh, what to do at that point. So I think English seemed interesting. At least something I enjoyed doing mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, the class of business would have bored me to tears. Mm-hmm. I'd have really been in outer space and not paying attention. So at least if I get somebody to keep me engaged, uh, with the classes, then I would have been involved with it. Yeah, absolutely. And did you have an idea of what you wanted to do with the English or it was just like, what can I do when I'm in college and enjoy this? Just something, yeah. yeah. Since the radio and TV major went by the wayside, I just wanted something to do. You know, if I had to be there, give me something and I'll at least be interesting. Right. Because um, there really wasn't, there weren't a lot of options there you could major in. Mm-hmm. So that's what I took. But I never got the teaching degree. You had a student teach. So I couldn't, I didn't, I'm not able to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. I went into retail, <laughs> sold a, uh, I was in the clothing business after I got out of college. So, okay, that's what I was going to ask next. What was kind of the career progression for you after you graduated? Well, I went to, um, I got out of college and um, I was at home. And my mother and I went over to Kaufman's department store. We had three major department stores in Pittsburgh, but Kaufman's was really the top one. It was the shining star. And my mother would like to go there. We went one day and she said, Bye, while you're here, you might as well walk over to the, to the employment office because you're not going to sit here all day. So, um, I got my mother's personality. <laughs> my dad was the <laughs> nicest guy in the world. He was the mayor here and everybody loved him. I'm not like him. People want me to be the mayor. I said, you don't want me. I'm more like her. So I had to get on and get a job. And I started off as a stock boy because that's what there was after when the, when the Vietnam War shut down, the stock market was like 700 right now. It was like 30,000. 30, it was 700 at the end of the Vietnam War. So there were no jobs anywhere. So I started off as a stock boy in Kaufman's and I went to their uh, management program. And then um, I became assistant buyer downtown. And I started looking for jobs. Once you start, because I wasn't, it was a pain uh, working through that job. It, it can have its moments. Most of the time it was boring. So um, I eventually went there. I went to a smaller place, an exclusive men's store. I was assistant manager there. And I wasn't happy with that. And my dad came along and said, Why don't you take the state police test? That's what he always wanted to do. But you couldn't be married back when he wanted to join. You had to be single when you joined. So I think, eh, I don't know if that's for me or not. And, you know, I took the test and I got in and they beat me about the head and shoulders while I was at the academy because I wasn't military, but I was there 32 years. I love, you know, I uh, left with tears in my eyes after 32 years because you had to have mandatory retirement. So, um, I went out. So I had a, I mean, I had a great time with it. I had no regrets, but the English didn't do anything. I mean, I could quote from Shakespeare on my accident reports, but outside of that English didn't <laughs> really benefit me at all. Except I had a degree for all that was worth. Okay. Wow. Okay. So 32 years in the police force. That's amazing. Um, yeah, 32 with the state and seven with the local department. So okay. 39 altogether. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations and thank you for that service. That's, I'm sure you've seen a lot and have, um, yeah, experienced all kinds of different things in that field. Um, are there any, yeah, yeah, any specific stories or things that stick out to you uh, from your time in that? Well, I was the first responder to Flight 93, crash of Flight 93 on September 11th, 2001. I was in charge of that area for the state police. 
uh, in charge of Somerset County. And um, so I did the first press conference up there. Uh, the main reason was we had so many people coming into the site. You couldn't get into D.C. and you couldn't get into New York City because everything was shut down. The only place all the people who were interested in this would come would be to Somerset. And um, we had people going into the crash site, picking up parts of the plane. Hmm. And that was, you know, that was a crime scene. Uh, all the evidence against the terrorists came from our site because everything else was burned up in the other two places. So uh, we set up a perimeter and I arrested the first reporters that came in. The local um, news channel, the NBC affiliate, had a um, um, overhead helicopter view of the crash site. And then they grounded everything, so they couldn't get in there to see it. So they told their reporters to come through our perimeters and get pictures. So I told them, I told my guys to arrest them all. We didn't, we didn't follow through. They were just doing their job. But he had to set the tone with what was going on. So I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'll take you all up to the top of the hill. And you can take my you can take my video video of me, and I'll give you the same view that everybody gets and the same sound bite, and then leave me alone. So I've mm. got time for this nonsense. So um, that's what I did. And that went played all around the world. It was just um, a coincidence I was there at the time. I happened to be luck. My luck being the way it was, I happened to be my A-list suit on because I was teaching a class at the police academy that day. So I look I had, could have been dressed better if I had if I had tried. Um, so and I was up there for eleven days. So wow. that was probably the most memorable thing yeah you know, on the bright side I mean, in fact that it's just the fact that i never i didn't know for years that the picture of the people being looking horrified at, at photos of the people in new york and looking horrified it took me a long time before i figured out because they were seeing people jump off the buildings that was all done by the time i got out of there i was there for 13 days mm. by the time i got home i that stuff was all done being seen so i had no idea that actually went on you know they, they stopped showing it Oh, you weren't so, like keeping track of what was happening in New York. I never, there was no time. We were at twelve-hour shifts, and um, you had to be on post early. And then by the time I got back in my room, so it was actually me like thirteen. The first day, you know, for the time I got up there, um, I had to do eleven o'clock news, and I had to do the again another live spot at midnight. And then CNN wanted me to come back at one a.m. I said I have to be back here at five o'clock. I have to drive to Greensburg an hour away to get my uniforms, <laughs> and then come back. And be on be, be at roll call at six a.m. Hmm. So I said, I, I'm, "You're gonna have to take a picture of my taillights going down the road." Mm-hmm. So I had about, an hour, about one or two hours sleep the first day. And then we had the whole next day that we went up there. But it was I've never been busier. But for all the people that grieved and were stressed, I, I didn't have time for that. Mm. I had um, we had to um, take care of business, and you have time to think about what was going on. So, wow. so that was it was a, a unique situation to be involved with. Yeah, what. What would you say were those like initial thoughts and uh, yeah, like what was happening as you're trying to figure this out? Because obviously that hasn't happened. Well, well, I was watching the news. I was teaching that class and they talked about um, I went in to get some coffee and they said, you hear what happened? The trade centers. And I said, no. So I walked down in in the classroom to one of the offices and they had the TV on. And um, I got an email checked. You couldn't get the phone. All the safe phone lines were tied up. So I sent an email to the guy that was taking my job while I was, while I was gone, my got to work for me. And I said, is there anything they were asking about any other federal buildings in our areas, you know, about security. The only thing I could think of was a Johnstown courthouse at that point. And, um, the federal courthouse in Johnstown. So I sent him email and it didn't I get an answer. It didn't get an answer. And then I got the answer back. I still have the, the email. I took a picture. I used to do a presentation about this for police departments around the country in rural, in rural areas, in case you ever had something, this is how we did it. Hmm. But I still have that copy of that email and said, Frank, we just had a 747 go down 
everybody's activated, got to go. And I said, what, what could you possibly, what does this mean? They didn't say anything on TV. And about five minutes later, they said they heard a report of a plane going down in Somerset. I said, well, so then I said, I got to go guys. And then drove out to the crash site. So, and then we got there. An oddest thing was the, we were, we were told everything had been grounded, but there were seven planes supposedly missing. So nobody knows what's going on. So we're walking around the site and all of a sudden we hear a sound of a plane overhead. And there's a, a jumbo jet, but it's right above our, I mean, right above our heads. It's not like way up. It's, and everybody's frozen. It's like a Twilight Zone episode where everybody's frozen. Nobody's moving. And I, I nobody's wondering, what is this? <laughs> Another one's going to crash. Of course it wouldn't be, but you can, nobody, their brains were fried that day. And then somebody, one of the FBI just mouthed to me, it was United Airlines. They were doing, they was their crash site. And they were just sizing up from the air. Mm. But just watching everybody freeze. I mean, there was no talking. There was nothing. Nobody moved. Mm. I saw that light. Everybody was watching at the same time. It was kind of mesmerizing to see it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was crazy. It really was to see. I have pictures of, like, and there was time, but they had, uh, there'd be a sign up what day it was because nobody, you didn't know what day, what day it was. Wow. You, you just lost, lost complete uh, idea because there was no, no calendars there. Right. And we just, you know, there were 12, we were 12 hours on scene. Yeah. Plus, you know, getting there in the morning and then going back if you ate dinner or whatever. And it was time to go to bed and get back up the next day. So it was the busiest I ever was the first couple of days. Yeah, I'm sure. So were you working with other federal agencies or who else was there to well we had the atf came the fbi was there because the terrorists uh, when bill clinton was president he made any terrorist incident a federal crime actually would have been a homicide it would have been a state case because it was terrorism it was theirs so uh we actually did the perimeter and then we brought up our people that did uh um traffic accidents they had a way of mapping scene called total station management i'm sure they've been updated since that time but it was something computer that you could uh, diagram the scene to explain how an accident happened. So we did that. And then we helped, um, they brought a backhoe up to dig up the plane and then go through it so they could find things. They had to find whatever they could find, a piece of hair or something just to try to get the names of the people that were on the plane. They had to match and then they had to reach out to the family members, see if they get something to match the DNA, something they had at their home, you know, a hairbrush or hmm. toothbrush or something that might have their DNA on. They could match who was who mm-hmm. uh, on the plane. So that was unique as well. Wow, that's incredible. Well, thank you again for doing that because I'm sure all those family members are very grateful for having that closure. Yeah, I did um, what I did when all the family members came up on two different times. Um, and what I had them do because we couldn't, I didn't have time to talk to them. I had my people stand at attention to salute them as they came by. Hmm. It was very moving for all of us. Hmm. And then this Japanese woman who lost her only child bowed to all of us in, in response and wiped everybody out. Hmm. And I felt since that's her only child she lost. And then I had to give her the death message through a translator. She wanted to know if he could survive. So no, you know, mm. could he, you know, kind of have his body back. <laughs> I don't have anything to give you. Mm. You know, I might have a little bit, you know, piece here, piece there, nothing. Mm. I don't have anything to, to, to give you. It was really sad. Mm-hmm. But she bowed to us and wiped everybody out because we did not anticipate that. You were expecting, you know, hugs and crying. We didn't expect anybody to bow to us. So nobody would steal themselves for that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that must be the really rewarding part of that job because I'm sure there's plenty of difficulty and really hard days, but that would be a rewarding part. Yeah, well, it was. Um, you find some things. We had all the all the people up there were so kind to us. They sent us. Um, they were, you know, we didn't have the Red Cross and the uh, uh, Salvation Army sent us food, and it was very helpful. You know, because there's nothing. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We mm-hmm. were twenty, really twenty miles from nowhere at that point in Shanksville. So they sent out uh, food for everybody and coffee, and then everybody wanted to get involved. So Olive Garden, Wendy's, McDonald's, 
they're sending food out for everybody for free every day. We had mm. so much food. It was unbelievable. We generally mm. don't. And pizza was sending, started sending pizzas and the pizzas got sent back. And one of my guys said, well, why do they send the pizza back? I, said, I don't know. I'll find out. So found out the Red Cross sent the pizzas back. They thought we'd be traumatized by the tomato sauce oh. on them. Yeah. Wow. I said, no. And then I realized they sent condiment stations. They used green ketchup. I said, none of these people, these people are all saying horrible things. I don't think you have to worry about ketchup here. With all respect. Right. I actually was amused by that. Actually, it kind of struck me funny. I said, you don't know, you don't know these people too well. Right. Yeah. You and guys think, day in and day out are seeing a lot yeah. of things that the rest of us don't ever have to deal with. Right. So that was, um, that was the unique thing. The other thing was um, when I first was at Captain in Washington, Pennsylvania, we had, there were two students kidnapped from Steubenville students down there and then brought up and murdered along with 22 uh, by these, these criminals and um, ended up being our case. Um, and then we, they were, they were kidnapped from there and then they were murdered in Pennsylvania. And that was horrible. It was a couple of days trying to find the bodies. So we finally did. So, um, yeah, so I felt so badly for their parents. Um, we just, you know, we're just the whole thing there. We kind of know you expect the worst when you do what I do. You kind of expect the worst over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're sad, but that's the way things go. Yeah. So that was just the fact that it was Steubenville of all places. Yeah, that's very ironic. So that's, um, that. I think that was in, what, 99? That would have been, I, it, was, it was 98. I, I went there in the fall of 98. So it was then, I, yeah, I'm thinking it was just like the spring of 99, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so any of our... Alums from that era would remember that, or I remember it because one of the students' moms, he travels, she travels around and talks about it and talks about forgiveness and all of that. So that was a really moving, and they still have a house off campus that um, has a big giant cross in, in front of it, um, like off of Woodlawn. So yeah, that was yeah, a, they, were, they were phenomenal people. And they didn't deserve that. I mean, very few people do, but it's just so sad. Those kids didn't bother anybody. You know, it just was no need for it. Yeah, so tragic, but also yeah. just like very providential and neat that you had the opportunity to uh, have that be a part of your history and then also yeah. be back involved. It was hard to believe you're talking to me, especially the students today. It just seems so when you're talking about in the flight 93, the people that are, uh, you know, who were around at that point, but other people, it's like, it's another planet. You know, some people don't even get that. It's like some historical thing they don't really get. Mm-hmm. And they realize how, how big a deal it was that day. Mm-hmm. I said, five more minutes, it wouldn't have been my problem. Because um, they'd have been in Maryland. Mm. They were so close to the Maryland border, the speed they were traveling, that wouldn't, it wouldn't have been my problem, but they have the land in my area. So mm-hmm. that's how I ended up there. Wow. Wow. Well, I know you were, we recently had you on campus to speak with students about criminal justice and your, um, your experience there. So I'd love to just hear again, kind of any advice you have for students. You have such a a vast uh, experience of good, bad, all of that. Like, what is your um, advice to students from your experiences or that might be interested in going into that field? Well, uh, one thing I would say that you're, um, besides criminal justice, get a major in something, get a, like a minor or something else. There's, there's computer studies or something like that. So you can find something else to do while you're waiting, you know, prepare you for the job market because while you're waiting to get, to get a job, you may end up working at a department store like I did selling clothes. Mm. Um, so you might want to try something, you know, that, in your major. If you're if you're good at, uh, I would say, accounting as well, if you have a minor in accounting, because that will help you uh, for white collar crimes. Mm. And you could help you, in a, if it gets you to something like the um, uh, any other type of agency, because white collar crimes are so important. I taught that for the government for so many years, white collar crime. 
And let's face, let's face it, there's only so many motives for committing a crime, one of which is money. And um, your smart criminals don't rob it with a gun. They do it with a pen. And uh, knowing how to look at books, um, you that's how you can solve so many of these cases. And so many people are afraid to look at it. It's not that hard. Hmm. Not as hard as people might think. But, I mean, having a background in accounting might help you. A background in computers might help you. A uh, background in science if you want to get involved with uh, the forensic part of it. So, but I would get a, I mean, make sure your mind or something is applicable. Like drama didn't help me at all either. <laughs> one way, you know, I've done some, I've done some extras and then some TV things, some part time stuff, but I didn't really get any work out of it. So mm-hmm. I had some other type of uh, accounting or something else, but it much help, more helpful for me mm-hmm. in doing that. But you know but how to write up it. reports. You have excellent right. writing skills. <laughs> exactly. I'm quoting Shakespeare on them. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I would, I would certainly do that. And, and number two, I said, expand your, uh, keep in mind, there's each each agency has uh, their own benefits and downsides. And the local, if you're, I have so many people I tried to recruit to the state police, uh, but a lot of times it was a woman because we, you know, it's hard to get women into law enforcement, and you know they want to be home with their. And I'm not. This is not a criticism. They want to be home with their kids at night. I said I understand that, um, but if you want to stay in this town, it's you know your, your chances are limited. You can get hired here, but your chances ever get promoted are very limited because it's a small department. The state police has many, many, many more uh, opportunities for you and a wide variety of things, but you may have to travel. And I was on mm. the road for a long time. I worked in Indiana, Pennsylvania for a number of years, and it was 40, 44 miles one way. I worked in Harrisburg for five and a half years, you know, and I had to commute out to there. So mm. uh, I had to spend a lot of time on the road. So I ended up having a good career, but it was there were a lot of sacrifices to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're married to somebody that also has an income and you don't have to, you don't need the money, then you don't have to do that. I did. I had to, mm-hmm. had to be on the road. So it was difficult, but I have no regrets. Mm-hmm. It worked out. Yeah. I always had jobs that were interesting. So, Okay, great. Very good. Well, to close up here, uh, we're going to take you back to your student experience and a couple of our questions um, are hot takes from the Hill. So uh, you kind of mentioned this before, but who was your favorite professor? Well, his name was Dr. Lee. And um, he was the most interesting guy when it came to talk about English. And he just really was, he made it, you would think it could be boring and it could be, let's face it. The instructor makes so much of a difference in things. And he's one of the people I always tried to, uh, cause I've taught a lot for the government. I taught basic, I taught a lot of police classes. And I always try to follow his mode to make it entertaining and interesting for the mm-hmm. students that are just droning on, uh, trying to keep them engaged. And he was very good at it. Right. Very good. What about your favorite class? Um, I like that, that probably his, his English class was probably the best. Um, I, you know, the other ones I really remember, I remember his stuff uh, for the most part, things I liked. I said, I've been much better if I had to wait until I was 21 or 22. Mm. You know, once I got out of the, on the GI bill, I've been much better off. Mm. But I remember his classes, they were interesting. And that's, you know, what I really want to do. I like the drama things. It was fun too. Mm-hmm. But um, those are the best ones. Good. And what about your favorite place to study uh, other than the library? <laughs> My bed, <laughs> they said of it, you know, I didn't do much. I said, I, I found it in, I, I, I wouldn't be lying to you. I said, I'd done much better, but I've been more mature, but I was right. 17 when I went to college. Yeah. So I was way too young to be there, mm-hmm. way too mature. And, you know, my, my, I lived a very strict life at home. So, you know, having the, having the leash off, mm. uh, you know, you, you go the other way. So I'd have done much better if I had been mature mm-hmm. and going to, to service, learn some discipline mm-hmm. and come back the other way. But, yeah, I did. Okay. I graduated. So yeah, it was a you, bright side. <laughs> you graduated, you went on very successfully. Uh, what about your favorite campus activity as a student? Well, we played uh, 
because we didn't have that. They they did that. They did have the Barons um, uh, basketball team, and they had been good for a while. So going to those games, but see, that was so far. We had we have nothing on campus. You had to get a bus to go someplace. It wasn't like um, you could, you know, right now they have it right there on campus. It's been so much easier for us to go had they been there. Mm-hmm. But um, the fraternities all had their own intramural sports, mm-hmm. and so those things were big. You know, the football and basketball, and even volleyball, those things were huge, mm-hmm. and softball. So there was one one for every season, and um, that was, you know, those are fun. Those those are really intriguing. Everybody got really heavily involved with it. Yeah. And then there's also the sororities had the powder puff. So yeah, it was, um, you know, those things were really big, and uh, everybody was heavily involved with it. It was a big deal to try to win those. Okay, fun. And finally, have you ever run into an alum in an unexpected place? Yeah, the one that I, I saw that, and one thing that I remember was I used to teach, I still teach for this company that teaches driving improvement for corporate people. And um, there was a, he wasn't in my fraternity, a guy named Kid Knight, Dennis Patton, was very, very nice. And uh, I was working in, in, in Ohio at um, a place called Saris. And he was, I found out he bumped in that I found it, he was in the building. I didn't, see, I didn't actually run into him. But I saw he was actually working there. I just missed him. Somebody mentioned his name. We were at Steris. <laughs> I couldn't believe he actually lives in that town. I would never expect to see anybody there, you know, because he wasn't from a mentor. Mm-hmm. But he ended up getting a job there, and I happened to be in the same place. So that was um, – I've seen some other people. But that was the oddest one, to see somebody at that place. So, you know, some places I might bump into them at a, at a game. Or I ended up one guy at Crooked uh, Creek State Park one time. He had a very distinctive voice. Oh, my gosh. And I came up underwater. I heard that voice. I turned around. I said, someone could be one person. <laughs> wow. I see in the water with me at Crooked Creek. So – but the, the guy, the guy and mentor is one who really surprised me. Yeah. Did you see something like that? They're really good guys. So we were in the same class. That's so great. Oh, awesome. Well, Frank, thank you so much for sharing. It's always fun to kind of go down memory lane and hear about what the college was like in the 70s and for you to have seen the changes. So thank you so much for sharing all of that and for your service and dedication and all that you've done. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. All right. Do you know an alumni with a story to tell? We want to share legends from the entire university history and would love your suggestions. Email us at alumni at franciscan.edu. And I'll be back here in two weeks with a new conversation you won't want to miss.